Hi, this is Tim Rood, Head of Government and Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest segment of On the Hill. So I'm thrilled to announce our uh, guest today, an old friend, great uh, professional in the mortgage industry, Stan uh, Middleman. Stan is, of course, the CEO of Freedom Mortgage. He was also the founder of it. It's a national full-service mortgage banker headquartered out of Mount Laurel, New Jersey, and is ranked in the top 10 mortgage originators nationally. Most folks would know that Stan is a very prominent business strategist within the industry. He's also been an active member of ResBog, the Mortgage Bankers Association's Residential Board of Governors, served on a number of executive councils like the Housing Policy Executive Council, tons of advisory boards, Freddie, Ellie, Fannie, you name it. Stan, thanks so much for joining us today. Nice to be here. So Stan, I was trying to dig through a little bit of your background. Congratulations on keeping a very low profile outside of what you've been able to accomplish, of course, in the industry at Freedom. But so I suspect you're from Philly. I saw that you went to Temple. Give me a little bit of background, like where you're from, how'd you grow up, stupid things you got into, any of that fun stuff. Well, I grew up in Philly. I went to Washington High School, and then I uh, went on to college, and I graduated from Temple University, majored in accounting. But at the end of the day, I worked part-time, I went to school, and just moved through my life, and then tried to go about the business of making a living. Nothing very extraordinary. It's funny how that, yeah, I was thinking about this this morning leading up to the mortgage industry. So I, I grew up, my family owned bars and restaurants, which was a very colorful existence in growing up. And I was thinking about it. And naturally, I wanted to ask you about this today. Like, how did you get into the industry itself? Because my story was very colorful. And I've yet to come across somebody in the mortgage industry that had a, a story like you typically run across people in DC. It's like, well, you know, I I was uh, growing up, I, I clerked for a Supreme Court justice. I uh, I interned at House Financial Services. And I'm thinking to myself, the silly things that got me into the industry and all the people I've talked to, nobody got into it by on purpose, usually by accident. And it was generally a pretty fantastic accident. What, what was your experience that got you into the mortgage industry? Well, when I was growing up, I was very interested in... Uh making money. I wanted, I worked a lot of jobs. I was uh, at 12, I was mowing lawns or 11. By the time I was 13 or 14, I was a busboy in a, in a diner. And I continued to work all through high school and uh, throughout college. And uh, I graduated college in uh, 1976. And it was uh, during the bicentennial celebration here in Philadelphia, which was a pretty big deal. Uh, and I had the, uh, the thought that I would sell hot dogs. And that thought to the crowds that were coming in, kind of like uh, a captive audience at a baseball stadium. <laughs> and that evolved into selling really souvenirs. So instead of hot dogs being the big push, I sold T-shirts and little mini Liberty Bells. And I was very, very successful with it. I ended up with 30 little stands around uh, Independence Mall. <laughs> awful, awful lot of souvenirs. However, 
like uh, many good things, they come to an end. We had Legionnaire's disease in Philly, and uh, what was a booming business got a lot quieter really fast. And then uh, ultimately, the summer ended, and the tourism waned, and uh, I was down to one stand uh, selling Liberty Bells and leftover T-shirts. And when I put those things behind me, I needed to go get a job. And I was able to do that. I got together with uh, a couple of elderly gentlemen and we bought a business uh, and we were in the alarms and locks business. And uh, we bought that for uh, very inexpensively. And then we sold it just so happened to a mortgage company, which is <laughs> completely unrelated to my career. Just It's just happenstance. Yeah. Uh, uh, after a while, I tried, I opened a few restaurants uh, again with these partners and then on my own. And I failed miserably to the point where I took a job selling insurance. And I looked at that. I did look into that. Mm-hmm. I got the opportunity to become well-trained in sales, which I think has been very valuable to me. Not only did I become trained in sales, I became trained in recruiting and in training uh, and teaching what I sold to others. And then ultimately, I went out and did that on my own because insurance was one of those things, not unlike mortgages, where it was easy to branch out and be your own broker. And I was able to do that and had some success. And this was all happening in the late 70s and early 80s. And interest rates had peaked, I guess, at 21%. I bought my first house with a 16% mortgage. And uh, when I had originally wanted to buy the house, I I couldn't buy it. I had to do a lease purchase, which uh, was very prominent at the time because interest rates were high and financing was tight. And I was selling life insurance and annuities, and it was pretty easy to sell annuities with 15% returns. <laughs> I'll take one now. <laughs> An interest rate, well, that's, that's, that's after all these years of perspective. And at the time, it may not have felt like so, so high a rate, but uh, as interest rates did start to come down and it became harder to sell annuities and mortgages started to become reasonably priced. I refinanced my 16% mortgage into a 12% adjustable and I thought I had won the lottery. <laughs> um, right. But I took advantage of, of that learning experience and began began to sell mortgages because the equity in homes had gone up quite a bit. I started to sell mortgages uh, with all the uh, pent-up equity that were in in home values because property values had gone up, and I, I was using that equity to buy annuities. And then I found that the annuities didn't make me as much money as I made in the mortgages and were harder to sell and harder to get closed. Um, They don't make as much in the short term, Stan, but there has always been an argument that if you had paid it loan officers and whatnot on the same sort of schedule that you did, life insurance people, that was a payment over time, maybe things would be different for the better. 
that argument could be made. And it was certainly interesting, but it led me to like the mortgage sale better. And then ultimately, as a mortgage broker, I just did one loan after another because I was taking the people out of higher interest rate loans and putting them into lower interest rate loans, which there were quite a few of. So by the time I got started as a mortgage broker in 85, there was a real trend down. And we had seen the rise of mortgage brokers on the residential side, which were not prevalent at that time. So right. weren't that, the field wasn't that crowded. And the people in the field had no interest in refinance activity. They were locked and loaded and believed only in people that were buying homes and financing new home purchases. So everybody who wanted to refinance was it was like walking down the beach and turning over <laughs> shells with, uh, you know, a thousand dollars under every shell. Mission so, with dynamite, baby. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So if it wasn't for the fact that it was really hard to process and close a loan at the time, credit was really tough took us about six months to do each loan. The loan files were probably six inches thick uh, and it, it was pretty rough, but that's how I got in the mortgage business. And that's how I learned the mortgage business. I had to sell and process and cajole bankers to buy the loans once I closed them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I had, to, I had to not only convince the customer, I had to convince the savings and loan. And by the way, at that time, savings and loans did the vast majority of all mortgages. And uh, they, you know, the bank, commercial banks did commercial loans and savings loans did residential loans. And then they deregulated them. And, and proof. then they saw something that looks an awful lot like today. <laughs> yeah. And we gave birth to the RTC, cleaning up the mess of what was savings and loans. You know, savings and loans disappeared almost overnight. From 1988 to 1991, I think every savings alone disappeared. That I mean, that's that's probably as fast as the dinosaurs disappeared. Yeah, ironically, it was Clinton that came around after all of that and implemented all the CRA stuff. It's like you clowns need to do more. You need to do more aggressive lending, expand credit, and all that. I, I you know, obviously, I think the tales about tagging CRA for the uh, with the housing crisis are entirely overblown, but it is pretty funny how, um, how quickly so we forget the lessons of the past. See, I wouldn't call it CRA because mm -hmm. I think that the crisis evolved from credit decision-making that went well beyond CRA. CRA, I think, was the seeds yeah. that may have grown into the crisis, but the credit was really destroyed through the way that they pushed housing. So, you know, when you live into a, in a neighborhood that's where the people that live in that neighborhood are mostly owners, that neighborhood is an economically healthier neighborhood than a neighborhood where it's mostly renters. And it wasn't hard to look out at the landscape and see that. So the Clintons and Bushes really believed that home ownership was a big deal. And they pushed that down into their political groups and Congress. And 
and they really got this the nation psyche tied into the American dream of home ownership because it was so valuable and so much wealth was created and still created for people that own their home that pay it off and they use that leverage that's generally only available to businesses as a way to build wealth at a rate that they could afford. And they, I mean, that one of the things that makes this country so wonderful is it gives everybody an opportunity to work hard and own their own home and build wealth that can be generationally passed down. And that's how my education got paid for. Uh, most of the people that I know had their, you know, their parents helped them get through college. Most people didn't get through college back in the day with student loans. They got a grant here or a grant there because education was important to the nation and they subsidized it to a degree, but they wanted you to have skin in the game. So your parents had to help you or you had to get a job and pay for it. And so I had a combination of all three of those things where I worked and my parents helped me and I got some grant money and I went to a state school that remained pretty affordable at the time and is still affordable for in-state students. But that way people can grow through a neighborhood with an education and it's not an impossible dream. And that's the American dream which becomes the American reality. And that's what makes this business so grand. You know, you feel like you're really doing something of value. I agree. No, I, I totally agree. Sometimes you lose sight of it. And I think I mentioned when I was speaking at the, the uh, VA's loan guarantee event um, yesterday, that was kind of the, the, the message I was trying to get across was, hey, look, these are tough times. The industry is changing. Certainly the government footprint in the industry is increasing and is unlikely to shrink anytime soon. But the important things are of how important housing and the mortgage industry are to the country. 20% of GDP, to your point, homeowners have a net worth that's crest well over 200,000 versus renters closer to 6,000, whether that's perfectly correlated or causal you know, is debatable, but we do know that it seems to be a better outcome to be in that very long line of wanting to be and being a homeowner versus a renter. So I, I totally agree that the stuff that we do is critically important and um, we tend to lose sight of it just through our day-to-day -day sort of interactions and stuff that we read and the trades and the papers from the federal agencies and whatnot that sometimes don't give you the vibe that this is like a three-legged race. We're in this in partnership with the federal government they need us. We're the instruments of their public policy. So we should all be working more closely together and assume positive intent and give everyone the benefit of the doubt within yeah, reason. Go back to when we were younger and there were things called Christmas clubs and Christmas clubs didn't <laughs> pay really interest. They just forced you to save. Right. right? And it was, it was basically a gimmick to get free deposits by the bank. But the truth is, is that Americans have a propensity not to save. They want to buy stuff they can't afford. Uh, you know, and, and credit cards really took that a step further where you really got more bang for your buck buying stuff than saving money. Because if you had to save money in order to buy things, that puts a damper on the entire economy. So in a consumer-driven economy, and if you use that, and I think mortgages were a, 
great example of the use of leverage on a personal level. Yep. And then when you add credit cards into the mix, now you've empowered the consumer to really drive the economy. And now it's not just in the hands of the industrialists or the capitalists, or as we became a service industry and the huge financial services industry. This gives people empowerment to have a better way of life, right? Uh, and to build wealth and to create spending, which in turn creates a wider economy that's more robust, that builds wealth and creates an opportunity for everyone. And the more opportunity you have, the more spending that goes on, the healthier the environment that you are and that you live in. But sometimes, and I think we're at that time, and this is where sometimes government can dampen, not stoke the fires of capitalism and dampen the ability to save and dampen the ability to build wealth by having well-intended policies that don't do what they wanted them to do. And then this is the, the law of unintended consequences, right? Or Murphy's law of what can go wrong will go wrong. If you take the home ownership percentage too high and you force too many people into home ownership because you can make it easy to own a home, they don't feel like they have skin in the game at the edges. And, and this is all about the edges, right? So the people at the margins get into a home, they drive the values up in the home by all the additional demand. So there's more demand than supply drives up the price of the supply. And that creates that bubble that we lived through during the financial crisis. And I was just talking to a guy today about institutional memory. And the institutional memory is just gone. And they, and they don't manage the way the world is going today. So when you drive home ownership into people that are not responsible enough or committed enough to the home ownership, and I think committed is probably a better word than responsible, it allows that social fabric to tear when things go against you. So if you get a mortgage at XYZ rate and you thought it was a good deal and you can afford it and you pay for it and then the property value goes down. Used to be you just made that mortgage payment. Then during the crisis, people started to make economic decisions and they tore that contract and they defaulted on those loans, which was an uncommon experience. <laughs> that wasn't something that our society was used to, where people choosing not to pay their mortgage. There's always been times when people couldn't pay their mortgage, but there was a time where when somebody agreed to a deal and had a contract, even if the contract was bad, they stuck to it and then waited for that contract to run through into better times to refinance or whatever the contract allowed them to do. But when that broke, that social contract broke, where I agreed to do this and then chose not to do it because the consequences to not doing it were better than the consequences of honoring that contract. That was a problem. 
And our world wasn't ready for that. Now we'll be ready for it this time because we'll know if the deal doesn't work, people will default on purpose, which is a different kind of default than, you know, when people default because they can't handle it, it drags out a lot of empathy, right? If people have sympathy and empathy towards people that can't perform, right? people that choose not to perform, I don't think they should get off the hook. And they should have some responsibility, even if it's just credit impairment, something of consequence that makes it relatively difficult for them to make that choice. And uh, I think when you push that envelope too far, where you have people that probably aren't ready to own yet and aren't prepared to honor the contract because they don't have enough skin in the game, they don't make enough money, they were leveraged into loans that they probably shouldn't have gotten. When you push home ownership, and it's really, it, it was the congressional requirements of the agencies. You and I have talked about this, the pressure that Congress and the government put on uh, the GSEs was immense for this social engagement to raise the home ownership level with the intention of making the, the neighborhood stronger because they were inhabited by homeowners. That they just took it too far. And when it went too far, the consequences lasted for 10 years both to the individuals involved and the neighborhoods and neighborhoods that weren't terrible neighborhoods became horrible neighborhoods. There was more drug use and boarded up homes. It hurt the values of all the homes around them. It brought out squatters and it just, the consequences to the people of the economic, the socioeconomic class that lived in those neighborhoods suffered because of the government's decision to expand home ownership too far, too fast. So Uh, did you... Consequently, have we noticed the same kind of thing happening here? What happened then? Liquidity problems, bad credit, long credit, short investments, runs on banks that had bad credit investments. Does sound eerily familiar, yes. What just happened? We've had borrow short, lend long, right? Or in this case, it was invest long at lower interest rates as interest rates rose, created the same liquidity issues around banks. You have bank runs, you get tighter credit, and ultimately it could result in other consequences down the road. So I think that when we think about government intervention, and government rulemaking, sometimes it's better to go slower and not try and rush in to fix problems that may not be problems and to come up with solutions where there may be a viable solution in place. And, you know, there are a zillion examples of this, but one of my favorite ones is to push in the GSEs to do loans to people that would not otherwise qualify for that loan. That puts a burden on mortgage insurers. It puts a burden on the primary uh, lender. This can result in repurchases. If property values go down, 
and the mortgage, the private mortgage insurance becomes invalid because they say the appraisal was bad because the property value is lower than what we insured. And that becomes an automatic repurchase at the GSE. And that creates a liquidity problem for the lenders. And that could take a lot of lenders down. It certainly did during the financial crisis. And none of that would be required because the FHA provides exactly the same type of loan that's got the government backing and is insured and guaranteed, just like FDIC deposits. And your mortgage loan can be treated just like your your insured deposits. You can have an insured loan. And none of that liquidity crisis has to happen. I agree. I read a lot of the things that people talk about in terms of the risks inherent in the system, but I don't see a lot of solutions. It's kind of like nothing speaks louder than silence. Like, what are you guys shooting for? It's as plain as the nose on your face, what the challenge is with the industry. We would all suffer from, you know, that that challenge uh, manifesting into a real crisis systemic events. So why the heck aren't we doing the obvious thing, which is just handling for the liquidity issue? This too shall pass, and then everybody will be here to do what the government needs us to do when we need it to done. It's more than that. It, I think it, what sometimes people shop for issues to build their careers. And I don't think, I think what you have to do is you have to support the institutions that accomplish the goal rather than treat them as though they're antiquated. So instead of dumping all that money into fixing problems that get created in what is supposed to be prime paper, why don't we invest that money into the FHA and in the VA and let people take advantage of those programs more readily? Let's make those programs less expensive because that's a lot less money than putting all these monies into this myriad of of housing programs that really are cyclically impacted. You know, the economy Mm -hmm. is tidal. It comes in and goes out. And the cyclical implications are not what they're set up for, but the FHA is. The FHA fund, for example, is so robust, it's five times over the federal requirement for the size of the fund. It can handle cyclical changes. But private mortgage insurance and GSE loans do not have that cushion. Well, so you're hitting on an interesting. Well, you're hitting on an interesting point, Stan, around the the use of these government programs because they're they're meant to be counter cyclical, right? They were meant to be surgical strikes to serve underserved households, which is the government's job. If there is a a public interest, a human right, something like that, that's not being met. For people to get FHA loans so that they get that benefit over time. That's great. I mean, there's there's a thousand ways to do things, but they don't come with the big fancy press clippings and the headlines. But here's what I realized recently at a talk I was giving, and I was trying to think through a little bit of just kind of the historical significance of policymaking in the U.S. And here's the cliff note version. That over the last roughly 100 years, politicians have been implementing housing policies that are maybe not exclusively but 90% demand-driven policies, okay? So how do I widen the credit box? How do I lower the cost of credit? How do I lower the cost for rental payments? All of those things with with very little other than like low-income housing tax credits and things like that um, that are working from the supply side. And as a consequence of that, two things happen. 
the government goes from being counter-cyclical, which is to step in when the private sector steps out, and instead has become pro-cyclical and is actually driving the demand to such levels that makes the properties unaffordable. Because as we all know, if you're making it cheaper to buy a house, then that subsidy that you use to make it cheaper generally doesn't ignore the benefit to the borrower as, as intended. It ends up ignoring the benefits to the seller. It's a subsidy to the seller because the borrower can pay more now and that's more competitive. So let's take that same theory and talk about how it could work. So if you gave that same equivalent dollar value of subsidy through tax breaks to people in certain income brackets to encourage them to be homeowners. But since you're getting it in tax breaks, which maybe you carry it over for three or five years so that it really lowers the effective cost to the housing, one thing that that does is it implies that people have jobs and it keeps people working and it gives them the opportunity to build equity in their home irrespective and this is the key irrespective of the cyclical nature of housing and real estate so they can get through downturns because they got in at a price they could afford with a low down payment and they can just you use the fha is a great example you could get 97 and even in some cases 100 percent financing using an fha loan but you have to have a job to qualify even though the dti which is a big thing today the debt to income ratio how much you make versus how much your bills are may be higher but the ltv is high so the credit can be challenged and your credit history can be challenged and still qualify for an fha loan Yet, if you got tax credits on top of that FHA loan, now you've gotten a way to subsidize you getting into the home that gets into the right hands. It's in the hands of the people you want to have it, and you're making them not be part of a welfare state. You're making them earn their way and have the opportunity to pay that loan back and getting that little nudge to get them started so that they get some personal momentum rolling down the tracks. And it's just, I think it's a better way and it's a better theory. It's a more American way in my mind, not to get political. I'm an independent for anybody keeping track at home around those things. I, I do think it's a, a more meritocratous sort of way of doing it. Look, we all want to be charitable. I'm certainly not uncharitable. I want nothing more than for everyone to be successful, particularly people who are hardworking, diligent, decent human beings, all in we win. I totally get it. I think that one of the challenges is, is that over time, again, that kind of 100-year horizon, if you're a politician, one thing that sooner or later comes to mind is all Americans and therefore their constituents probably live indoors or have a bias towards living indoors. Therefore, anything I can do to give them more opportunities from home ownership, make it more affordable, give them better options, more options and things like that is probably a good platform, even though you could distort the entire market because you're trying to help everyone. And that's what we've run across, which is demand-side policies that drive up values. 
values make the homes less affordable. Therefore, you need even more aggressive demand side policies, which make properties uh, less affordable, and so on, and so on, and so on. But here's the problem. The reason it doesn't get in the hands of the people it belongs in is because they're the ones that get wiped out when property values go down. And then it takes them so long to recover, you've now created an extended period of time where people can't lift themselves out of the doldrums by their bootstraps because they're busy walking around with the, this burden on their shoulders of, of bad credit that stops letting them buy things that they can't afford. And by providing people the opportunity to buy things that they can't afford, one could say it's setting them up for disaster. Another would say it's providing them with leverage and the leverage to build wealth. And we need to not only help people get that leverage, we have to teach them how to use it to build wealth and to improve their standard of living. And I think that that's critical. We should have a conveyor belt of people that are below the standard of living and that move along to become educated homeowners, working people, taking advantage of tax credits when they need them, and then moving on to not needing them anymore, whether it's them or the next generation of their family that benefits from their sacrifice, like so many of us have. And then to be the person at the other end of that spectrum that pays for that conveyor belt and for all the, the support that's being given along the way. I'm extraordinarily philanthropic, but I ask the people that I donate money to, to be able to use my money to make their ability to make money better. And this, I think that's, that's critical that we don't give people money to survive. We give people money to thrive. And we support those that need it, the voiceless. I'm a big donor at Children's Hospital here in Philadelphia. Sure. The sufferers there are voiceless, right? You want to support the voiceless folks, the people that can't do for themselves. That's why Freedom Mortgage is the, the largest lender of FHA loans and of VA loans in the United States. And we're the largest Gini servicer and have been for many years. And, you know, it really goes to that theory that we want to support the people that can then support themselves and make their own way and get on that conveyor belt to wealth so that they don't need that support. And I think that I'm seeing that in our servicing book. We're seeing people that are going to have some of their insurance go away. The cost of that insurance is going to be lower. They may be able to refinance into a lower cost, even coming out of low interest rate government loans. They may be able to go into the next round of lower interest rates without the burden of that government insurance cost because they graduated. And a lot of our customers are going to graduate out of FHA loans and into conforming loans without mortgage insurance. And what an opportunity that'll be for folks. I'm a big believer in helping people help themselves. 
and helping people that can help themselves. And that's why we're so active in the underserved community. Yeah, you guys do an amazing job not to blow smoke, but I mean, you obviously walk the walk. I can see it firsthand. And I think I've known and worked with you for probably 15 years. So I think I've got a firsthand um, view, pretty legitimate firsthand view of what you guys are all about. And there's no doubt about it. But now that we're getting towards the end of this, I mean, you covered a lot of a lot of ground. And uh, on some level, I'm I'm biting my palm because I want to tear into so many of those different subjects. And I think that we're probably uh, substantially uh, in sync on our points of view of those things. So maybe we'll just do a, I don't want to call it a lightning round, but if you were to summarize for the folks, you know, we're taking stock. The message I wanted to get across, I guess, is, look, you and I have been through enough of these crazy markets that, you know, persistence is excellent. Perseverance is critical. So you've got to persevere. You've got to be smart. I know you wrote an article about success factors, decision making. I read them and I thought they were they were pretty spot on. So I think this is a good opportunity to show folks, hey, look, we've been through this before. Is this time a little bit different? Yeah, it ain't that different than some of the other ones. And that the future is going to be different, but it should be mostly bright just when you think about, again, everyone in America has a bias towards living indoors. Politicians are increasingly using home ownership and the mortgage industry as tools for their own personal gain, uh, whether that's just politics or whatever. So those things are not going to change. So therefore, the roles of the people in this industry are, are still going to be critical going forward, but they just give them some confidence that we've been there, done that, stay steady. But I did want to close out with a couple of things. Did you want to Say anything about that before I just close it out with a couple of open questions that I wanted to run? I would think a couple of things. So in third grade, we learned that the three fundamental things that people need is uh, food, shelter, and clothing, right? And I think that we focus really on, on food, on uh, housing and, and shelter, but Food insecurity is a problem in this country, and probably inflation brings that out as much as anything. We've been big supporters of uh, Feed America and a lot of the, the local feed, food banks. We, we, we work with a lot of them. And I worry about that because, again, it's the, the voiceless people, uh, the underserved folks that really are the ones that suffer from inflation you know when you pick up something and you have a job and you go gee this is really expensive and you're in the supermarket and you you, you pick up that that uh, whatever the food item is and you say oh that's awful expensive gee but uh, i want it and you put it in your cart and that's when you're employed when you're unemployed you pick up that same item and you go, oh, I think I'm going to go get cereal instead. And you're making harder choices, right? And I think that the fact that everybody's employed today is a great thing. But I, I think we have to make sure that we understand that there's trade-offs. And if we're going to dampen inflation, 
and the government's working really hard to do that. The only solution is to create higher unemployment, and it's a trade-off, and you can't have both. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. And it's really important. And it's an important thing to understand. So what do I think? I think property values are going to go up. I think that people are going to stay fairly well employed. Really high percentage of people are going to be employed. I think we're going to have some inflation for a little while. And then I think interest rates will come down because there's just a certain amount of interest rate hike fatigue. I think We'll learn to live with a little more inflation because people aren't really suffering from the inflation because they're employed. That will lower interest rates. It'll drive demand for housing. We'll pay more for our homes, and then we'll have a correction. And I think all of this happens between now and, say, 28, 29. And people that buy houses that they can't afford during the next five years are going to find themselves really challenged after that. So the only words of wisdom that I would give is that live within your means, not beyond them. It's true. And as you're talking about inflation, what's the best hedge against inflation, at least in our world? Wait for it. Homeownership. Right? Uh, It's Um, a hedge against inflation. So in any case, well, let me close out with, so, I mean, we, t- we covered a lot of ground. I guess why I wanted to close for the folks that are listening is w- what kind of advice would you give someone who's either just starting their career in the mortgage industry or facing some adversity in the industry? Take a minute, but anything jump to mind? Live within your means, <laughs> buy a home, and keep in mind that the best mortgage is no mortgage. If you go into a downturn and your house is paid off, even if you lose your job, it's not so terrible. I like it. Yeah, I would say continue to hustle, stay smart, stay curious, and just outwork, outthink, and outread your competition. This too shall pass. It always passes. And uh, be positive. So in any case, Stan, always great to catch up. I love and respect everything that you've done and always enjoy our time together. So thanks for today. Hey, thanks for having me, Tim. It's been fun. Okay, buddy. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On The Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.